That movie sucked. I kind of liked it. Movie Night Crew Network. After you, said Ron, grinning. So Harry climbed the ladder first. He emerged into the strangest looking classroom he had ever seen. In fact, it didn't look like a classroom at all. More like a cross between someone's attic and an old-fashioned tea shop. At least 20 small circular tables were crammed inside it, all surrounded by chintz armchairs and fat little poofs. Everything was lit with a dim crimson light. The curtains at the windows were all closed, and the many lamps were draped with dark red scarves. It was stiflingly warm, and the fire which was burning under the crowded mantelpiece was giving off a heavy, sickly sort of perfume as it heated a large copper kettle. The shelves running around the circular walls were crammed with dusty-looking feathers, stubs of candles, many packs of tattered playing cards, countless silvery crystal balls, and a huge array of teacups. Ron appeared at Harry's shoulder as the class assembled around them, all talking in whispers. "'Where is she?' Ron said. A voice came suddenly out of the shadows, a soft, misty sort of voice. "'Welcome,' it said. "'How nice to see you in the physical world at last.'" Harry's immediate impression was of a large, glittering insect. Professor Trelawney moved into the firelight, and they saw that she was very thin. Her large glasses magnified her eyes to several times their natural size, and she was draped in a gauzy, spangled shawl. Innumerable chains and beads hung around her spindly neck, and her arms and hands were encrusted with bangles and rings. "'Sit, my children, sit,' she said." What's up, potheads? Welcome to the restricted section, in which a bunch of nerds with potty mouths reread the Harry Potter series for the umpteenth time and discuss how the story and its themes have stayed with a generation into adulthood. Thank you for listening. If you haven't done the reading, don't worry, we did it for you. Here's what we are talking about today. Chapter 6, Talons and Tea Leaves, Part 1, Tea Leaves. In the first half of this chapter, Harry, Ron, and Hermione get to do their first day of school. Woo! Except their first class of the year is divination. And (laughs) it's not exactly what they expected. Professor Ceylani is um, a little silly. And Hermione does not appreciate what Professor McGonagall calls a very imprecise branch of magic. They start off by reading each other's tea leaves, and Professor Ceylani sees a grim in Harry's tea leaves, which is an omen of death. Afterwards, the class goes to Transfiguration, where Professor McGonagall tells the class that Professor Ceylani has predicted the death of one student every year, and none of them have ever died, so Harry shouldn't even worry about it. Don't even worry about it, bro. Don't even worry about death. You're a Gryffindor. Okay, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> that's that's the sound of me. I'm like, I'm like, there's a good joke. I'm gonna start. We're gonna start the episode with a good joke. Just give it, give it a second. Um, man, I'm drinking an, a low cal IPA and it tastes like water. It's like not very good at all. Uh, we got a soda stream for Christmas. Yes, and I love it. Does it so. actually taste good? Yes. Look, I the first day we got it, I drank so much water that I flushed out too much of my salt and I accidentally like dehydrated myself by overhydrating myself. Oh my I had to like <laughs> stop drinking water and consume salt. Wow. <laughs> that was broke brook jerky. Yeah. Brook jerky. You know. <laughs> 
curing myself to perfection. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to get started at this time. What is this I see in your cup? My dearie, a podcast is in your future. It's me, your host, Christina. Welcome to the restricted section. I always pause for applause. No one ever applauds me. Um, I'm your host, Christina. Said that already. Uh, how are we doing today, Brooke? How's it going? You know, doing all right. Really um, enjoying my day thus far. Having a good time. Awesome. Mary Peyton, how about you? Oh, she's doing the dog thing. So sorry. Um, I'm doing great. I was just trying to get the dogs to stop attacking their faces, each other's faces. Um, yeah, I'm doing great. Uh, what did I do today? I worked. I don't, I can't tell you. I'm never ready for that part. I don't know why. What day is it? Where am I? (laughs) Move on, move on. Our very special guest today is Fauna, the host of the Cats, Tea, and Witchcraft podcast. Fauna, welcome. Hello. We're so glad you're here. (laughs) Thank you. A perfect person for this, apparently, because of your podcast, the perfect person for this chapter. Mm -hmm. Yes. I was excited that this was the one I was able to get and pick and everything because it's literally what I do. Hell yeah. At minimum two thirds. Definitely tea and witchcraft. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I guess Crookshanks doesn't make an appearance, but Cat McGonagall does make an appearance. Ooh, all three. Is Hermione's cat ginger? Yes. yes. I have a ginger cat. Mm hmm. He's mm-hmm. a big boy. A big boy, that cat is chonky. <laughs> Fauna, if you could please tell us a little bit about your Harry Potter history. When okay. did you get into the books? When did you get into the movies? What's what's going on there? Okay, so I pretty much got into Harry Potter as soon as the books kind of hit the United States. I remember my dad coming home and holding a book behind his back because he knew it was a big thing, but I was still a little too young to like understand yet because it's still it was just the first book at that time. So I remember him pulling it from behind his back and he's like oh this book and then the next memory I have is him reading it to me and my sister in bed and from there the movies came out within a couple years all the books he read all the books to me up till the fourth book and then I read all the rest myself he had always get his own copy and I got my copy and we would just like read them as fast as we could Um, and then with the movies and everything so just along with everyone else so, Fauna, what Hogwarts house are you in? I am a Slytherin. Oh, and yeah. I'm very proud of it. Um, I feel like I have Ravenclaw tendencies. You're wearing all I, blue right now. I'm wearing all blue, but I am definitely for a Slytherin. And people don't see it up front until they kind of get to know my sassy side and kind of the more of like the... What's in my brain is not always what comes out of my mouth. It's a little more like the cynical, a little more Slytherin. It's like that more internal. And then outside, it's just probably how I project myself as more Ravenclaw. But my mm-hmm. internal side is definitely more Slytherin. We talk about that a lot about like, I'm a Hufflepuff, but I present as a Gryffindor. You know, we all have our inside and our outside. I was thinking of this um, the other day um, when I was re uh, going over i was listening to an audio version of it just so in case i missed anything mm-hmm. um when i was coming back from uh, christmas and i was like oh i was slytherin with the ravenclaw tendencies but then i was like oh that sounds like i'm talking about astrology i'm a virgo with a rising leo uh-huh. <laughs> Yo, honestly moon. i like use that the same way because to me saying that i'm a cancer leo cusp is almost exactly the same meaning as i'm a hufflepuff gryffindor cusp like those mean yeah. kind of the same thing to me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's super fun. I was like, that's really funny. And like Slitherclaws in general are just such a category of human. Like there's a lot of Slytherin Ravenclaw cusps. Yeah. We've 
talked about this before. I actually recently took a, like, what's your house quiz just for mm-hmm. funsies that gave you percentages. Mm-hmm. And it actually, so I was 100% Ravenclaw, which makes sense. But shockingly, I've always been like at least 50% Slytherin on top of it. And this time it put me 50% Hufflepuff, which I feel like could not be further away from my personality. Oh, hmm. You're mellowing out as you get older. I'm losing my edge. (laughs) You're married now. Oh, man. A married woman. Got mad boring out of nowhere. No offense to the puffs. (laughs) No, it's okay. We just like to eat and nap. Which is fun in its own way. So today we're going to be talking about chapter... Fucking scroll, 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 six. (laughs) Talons and tea leaves. But as it happens, chronologically, this chapter is tea leaves and then talons. Um, Mm -hmm. It just sounds better or vice versa. So today we're going to be covering the first half because this is a very long chapter um, with a lot of like new stuff. So we're going to be covering the tea leaves portion of this, which is why we brought Fauna to talk a little bit about witchcraft before we dive into the chapter, Fauna, is there anything that you, from your Cat's Tea and Witchcraft perspective, um, like noted in this chapter about the tea reading or anything else that Trelawney was like talking about? Yeah, actually, it was really interesting. And since it's been a long time since I read this book and since I've been practicing witchcraft, how the general census and how you do like tea reading was pretty spot on. And honestly, I thought that was as accurate as a fiction book could get without getting too technical. Mm-hmm. Cool. But yeah, I thought it was actually really cool because um, it said how like you do this to flip it and read it and stuff like that. And it's really not a hard process. The hard part is the deciphering of it. Yeah, which we get to see in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> My dear boy, you have the grim. <laughs> Cool. Well, so we start out and it's the first day of school. Pretty classic, like, Harry Potter vibe. Like, we're at breakfast. Term starts today. We need to get our schedules. Things are already terrible between him and Draco. Already terrible. Well, Um, and also for him personally, he's already trying, someone's trying to murder him. He's... Again. (laughs) He's being made fun of by the Slytherins, particularly Pansy Parkinson, who comes out of nowhere to have a whole ass personality in this chapter. I wrote yeah. almost the exact same note. And didn't they, like, describe her as, like, a pug? Okay, so that's the part I had an issue with. <laughs> Brooke is like, first of all, how dare you? Pugs? Yeah. Having a face like a pug is a goddamn compliment. Pugs I have the cutest pugs. faces in the entirety of the dog world. Well, and also, I want to know, I mean, does she have the respiratory issues that come with being a pug? Does she snort? Is that what Draco's into? Like, <laughs> If so, she is deeply unpopular in the common room and deeply unpopular in her dormitory because pugs snore a lot. No, Aww. pug face over there. <laughs> Just like Pansy Ebley's Breathe with your mouth closed. I'm trying to study. <laughs> she wouldn't be able to fly on airplanes. They literally don't allow brachycelic dogs on airplanes because they have such a hard time breathing at a pressurized <gasps> altitude that they can spontaneously die. Oh so my she has God. to fly low on her broom. <laughs> yes. Bugs just going in her in her teeth. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> poor girl. Like poor girl. I want to now have a. Pansy Parkinson memoir that's just Pansy Parkinson, memoirs of a pug face. <laughs> pug life. 
Pug life. The pug well, life of Pansy Parkinson. I will draw that. <laughs> yeah, let's wait. Brooke and I both got new pop filters. The pug life of Pansy Parkinson. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, she simply can't actually have a pug face. Like, that's just not, like, a human look. And also, not to be this way. But ultimately, Draco Malfoy dates her, right? Yeah, I guess that's what he's into. I mean, she's thousand percent vibing on him in this chapter. Yeah, for sure. But he does seem, he does seem like, you know, he's so obsessed with how he looks. His family's so obsessed with how they look. Yeah. You would think you, she's got to be cute in some way, even if it's just for show. Like, what's cute to one person is not cute to everybody. Like, I've been introduced to some people's significant others and went, oh, but, like, they're into it, so. On the flip side of that, my friend Courtney, who's a former guest on the show, always said to me throughout college when we were single that there's a subset of super, super hot people who are into every body type, including yours. Yeah. That's what you just need to tell yourself. Every day when you look in the mirror, you're like, the hot dudes out there like me. Mm Mm-hmm. For sure. And that's my TED Talk on self-confidence. That's what you say every morning in the mirror? Yeah, I'm like, dudes out there like you, and Sean's like, I'm right here. (laughs) You're married. I'm like, yeah, one day you'll get a hot dude. (laughs) And he's like, hello. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so Malfoy is doing an impression of Harry fainting, which doesn't sound actually fun to do. It sounds like you're just, like, stage falling. Yeah. Just being a dick. Just being a straight up dick. And according to the text, he gets roaring laughter in response. Like, I don't know, man. It's not that funny. I, I do think the Slytherin crowd a lot of times is the kind that fake laughs just to make the people they're making fun of feel even worse. Yeah, because they're 13 years old. Like, remembering back to middle school between all the crazy hormones, middle schoolers are assholes in general, and they're just going to laugh with whatever the crowd is laughing at. Like, that's just what happens. Mm -hmm. Man, the most fun year of my life was eighth grade, and I'm not even being traumatic. (laughs) Man, how lucky. Jesus. I was in all – that was before the school realized that I didn't belong in all honors classes, and I was in all honors classes with my super nerdy friends, and we never had to talk to anyone besides our little – our little fam blam of nerd kids. Hmm. Um, we, and we were hilarious. Anyway, I've always been chasing the high of how funny we were when we were 13. <laughs> they sit down with the twins at the Gryffindor table. George hands them their class schedules. Um, we haven't spent like a ton of time with the twins so far. Just like a couple lines in every book. Um, and we definitely get to see them more in this book. And previously, Haley has pointed out that out of the two of them, George is a little more no-nonsense, and Fred is a little more, like, silly. And even in this chapter, I was, like, noticing that. I've been looking out for it ever since she said it. Hmm. So George is like, here's your class schedules. Don't even worry about fainting. And Fred's like, well, let's go play Quidditch, basically. I have a real question, because they're talking about how terrible the Dementors are, and by extension, Azkaban. Mm Mm-hmm. And I would really like to know what you guys think we're supposed to take from this. Like, is this a commentary on the inhumanity of the prison system? Is this a thing that we're just accepting that prisoners go to this place where they lose all sense of self and slowly go insane due to a lack of joy? Like, what do we think this is? I took a lot of this, even after my first read, I feel like, to just be build up to make Sirius more and more crazy and deranged. So that we get more and more worried about the kind of 
twisted person that he could be after the situation that he's been in. Because I don't, I really don't feel like she goes into it enough to, to really be talking about the prison system. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think at the time, this book, at least when this book was written, that was something that might have been really talked about. Maybe it was in England um, and compared to here, but I know as the last 20 years have gone on, social changes and norms have really been adjusting. So maybe we can identify that with now, but I don't know if that would have been written then. I'm not sure. But in general, I think like what you were saying, um, Mary Payton, um, that it was more of a buildup for Sirius because they say the Dementors like suck all joy and eventually that's going to like make you go crazy. Like, But what we know how what really comes out of Sirius, what we know who he is after reading and continuing on, it just shows his strength. Yeah. Sort of thing, because anyone else, like, would have gone crazy. Yeah, it's like the cherry on top of his badass persona that he curated in high school. He's like, yeah, and I went to prison. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't even, like, good prison. It was, like, magic prison. I I don't know if I'm making this up, but doesn't he say something about, like, the the hope that kept him alive was the fact that he knew he was innocent, and that's what kept him from losing his mind? Was that right? Uh, Oh, serious? Yeah, I I think that, that sounds familiar. I like that as an interpretation. I don't know. I just have, I'm having a hard time reading this as an adult. Yeah, I agree. Just being like, just having everyone just like casually accept that if you do a bad thing, because they don't seem to have multiple prisons. Yeah, there's no county jail. It's just like, it's just like straight to Alcatraz. And any bad thing and you don't deserve joy anymore is a hard sell for me. Yeah. At that point, that would mean you'd have to do something really, really bad to go to Asban or even just get arrested besides, like, underage kids can't do magic. Right. Uh, you, you pretty much have to murder someone or, like, join a cult. And at the beginning of this book, when Harry accidentally blows up Aunt March and he's like, I guess I'm a hardened criminal now and I'm going to yeah. go to Azkaban. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> you sweet child. No. Yeah, you're no. Not going yeah. Here. Yeah. It is hard also to separate Azkaban from sort of like what we know about it from the future books because so yeah. far it's like all we really know about Azkaban is that the mentors suck the life out of it. No one's ever broken out until now. And also we like wrongfully sent Hagrid there. But like later when we meet Bellatrix Lestrange is, is really specifically who I'm thinking of. And it's like that is a person who belongs in Azkaban. Yeah, and that's what I'm thinking of, like, the absolute crazy, like, she was crazy before. Yeah. And she's definitely crazy afterwards. But, yeah. like, you get things like Hagrid, where he was sent to Azkaban basically on, like, a suspicion and a whisper. That is just more of the prejudice that the people in the Wizarding World have against Hagrid, maybe, because he's half-giant in everything that comes to that, he already has had suspicions about his entire past, and people have always not liked him for X, Y, Z reasons, so maybe it was just like, oh, well, he's the giant, yeah. um, whatever. Definitely some racism there. Yeah. I think that the bottom line is that from our perspective, like 20 years or whatever after this book was written, mm-hmm. we we're able to put a lot more meaning into it than was actually there in the first place, because yeah. I don't believe that that bitch, Roldemort, Thank you, Taylor, for that one. That's um, beautiful. I love that. <laughs> I don't believe she w- was trying to say anything about the penal system because she ultimately doesn't say anything about the penal system. When Hagrid comes back from Azkaban, he's like, happy to be back. And they're like, yeah. okay, well, I guess you can have a job now, but you definitely still can't do magic. And it's like nothing gets resolved. Like, there's yeah. no point made. That's very true. 
And Arthur Weasley is like one of the kindest people at the ministry yeah. that we meet. And, you know, George says that Arthur went there and came back all week and shaking. But you don't, yeah. she never brings up Arthur's view on Azkaban. You know, he and Molly don't seem to ever, that we see, talk about the terrible conditions there. So. It's accepted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Let's, um, let's like, continue to pay attention to this as we go on. I think especially when we, I think we talk about it at the end of Goblet of Fire when we meet Barty Crouch Jr. And we definitely talk about it in Book 5 at length because um, that's when all of the Death Eaters escape. Mm. Voldemort's not back. Just all of his followers broke out of prison randomly. Like, he's not back, though. Like, don't even worry about it. <laughs> No one's going to read between the lines. Yeah, we got this. This is under control. By the way, I resign. <laughs> I'm, I, that, that was my uh, Cornelius Fudge soliloquy. That was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. On a totally unrelated note. <laughs> we also learn from the twins that Malfoy was in fact scared of the Dementors on the train. And he, like, ran into their compartment because he was, like, so scared, which probably was fun for them. Like, what's up, bud? <laughs> I laughed at that part. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> Although, if you had to, like, run for cover on the Hogwarts Express, I would find the Weasley twins. They're good at magic and they're crafty. Yeah, and even if they hate you, they're still gonna have your back if you're, like, a peer. They've got the, like, pure heart of Arthur, like, through and through. They'll make fun of you forever, but they'll still cover you. Yeah. Love so much. George is like, don't even worry that you fainted. And Fred is like, yeah, we're just going to beat the Slytherins at Quidditch. So, like, just focus on that. Really channeling some Oliver Wood intensity. They get their class schedules. Hermione's looking at her new class schedule. And Ron, like, peeks over her shoulder. And he's like, they must have messed this up because you're basically taking three classes at the same time. Hermione has three 9 a.m. classes on Mondays. That's a nightmare. I immediately was like, Ron, mind your fucking business. Well, I I had the opposite thought where I was like, Hermione, it is like minute one of your life with a time turner and you're already letting people get clues. Like, why are you doing this? Yeah, she really shouldn't have let anyone see that schedule. That's that a very important part of hiding the time turner. She's not even good at lying about it. Her response is like, what? And he's like, what? And she's like, can I have jam? Yeah, she's like, why don't you just shut up? Anyway. She's probably not very... I mean, she's done a couple of fibbing the teachers so far, but she hasn't... I don't think she's done much lying, to be honest, in her life. Like, like flat, li- like, lifestyle lying. Yeah. If you ignore it and deny it, it doesn't <laughs> exist, right? Yeah. Lifestyle lying is a thing that I feel like all millennials know well. So well. Can we talk for a second about, just about that excitement of getting your class schedule Not only was that exciting in, you know, especially when you got to middle school or high school, wherever you first started to get to pick some of your You felt like you had choices. And you got to see what teachers you had. And, like, they don't really get to see who they're with. They're with their same, you know, um, house the whole time. But especially when it's magical classes, Mm -hmm. that would just be, ah, it just gives me such a good feeling. I was thinking that, too, because I was like, if I were Hermione, I would probably also take all of the electives. So here's a question. Don't you feel, well, I feel, and do you feel, that having three 9 a.m. classes would maybe fuck up your circadian rhythm a little bit? I I didn't really think the first time I read this as a kid about just the toll that this would take on her. 
Yeah, in like a lot of different ways. Yeah, like even if she has the mental capacity to understand those and to be able to take the tests and study and stuff like that, she's still physically living all of those times over and over. So her days are like 18 hours long. Right. She repeats it that many times. So she's living like three days per day. It reminds me of flying to Alaska. <laughs> yes. If you fly out of ending. the East Coast to Alaska, it's like the sun the sun never moves in the sky because you're just like going with it and you have like layovers and like different planes and like you y- and then you get to Alaska and you're like the sun is still up and you look at your watch and it's midnight and you're like, what? And it's like the most yeah. disorienting thing in the world, that's all. I had a different reaction to it because like they're in middle school. They're 13 years old. And I've thought of this multiple times in my adult life, <laughs> young, short adult life. I'm not even that old. Um, but it's just like thinking how much energy I had back at That's 13 true. years old. Because I would stay up super late on my computer every night just playing games. Wouldn't go to bed till 2 in the morning late sometimes. Wake up at 5.30. Go to school. Immediately go to sports after. And I wouldn't even get home till 8 o'clock. So I'm like rolling i never took naps till college i don't think you meant to say you're like rolling like molly but that is what molly does to you also <laughs> that's how us 20 sometimes do it it's yeah. like oh, i don't have the energy i did when i was 13 i need some molly to get rolling now oh I did i did i say that i don't even know what i was saying then um but i was just rolling and rolling yeah. through the day and it's just like but then now it's just like, oh, that sounds yeah. exhausting. But it's like, I wish I had that energy to do that because I feel like my days are too short to get the amount of things I want done. I think that's part of why I felt like I was eight, eighth grade was my funniest, best years because I just had so much energy. To be fair, I feel like school uh, exists in like a fugue state where time doesn't exist because I so I'm taking grad school classes right now. I guess I'm getting a graduate degree. I'm not just taking the classes um, <laughs> for fun. But I have gotten into the habit of doing my grad school work because it's online at like from like 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. And for whatever reason, my ability to sit at a computer and learn is like an unending power source like I don't really get tired doing it because I'm super hype about what Mm -hmm. I'm learning you're stimulated and also because it's like tickling your brain in a real good way you end up in a situation where you're just kind of like you're you're too excited you're too academically turned on to like go to bed in the same way I agree also with like when I'm working on my stuff and working on art and stuff like on Friday night like during the week I like to go to bed like eight or nine and I get made fun of all all the time because I'm like I want to go night night and they're like no we're gonna like stay up we're doing stuff but when I'm doing creative stuff or I'm learning or I'm reading like you said like time doesn't exist it's like that mental stimulation and this is why I always when I was younger um identified with Hermione on the educational part maybe not some of the other stuff but with like how much education can drive someone when they're really into it yeah and I'm like the other half of Hermione's personality like the bossy snobby know-it-all part of it so together we make one full Hermione (laughs) And the other thing to consider is, like, the time turner whilst used for classes could also probably give her quite a few extra hours of, like, studying and homework time, which would be nice. Wait, wait, but but Hermione's the kind of person who I think would really run herself into the ground by extending her study hours more than she really needs to. 
Yeah. I'm thinking of Grace, who never takes a day off of work and works 100% all day long. And then like everyone else logs off at five and she's like, I still have stuff to do. And it's like, you simply must stop working because we're all assholes now. Grace, you hear me? Stop working right now. Grace. <laughs> text me if you hear me. <laughs> text me. This is a test. Also, you don't get paid extra for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is why we're all afraid to take our vacation time. <laughs> yeah. I wonder, like, this is getting a little too trippy, but so if Hermione is literally, her body is, like, reliving these hours, Ooh. does she age faster? That's tough. And then, you know, I'm thinking about how in the movie, Ron, nope, Hermione and Harry were just kind of standing there while the world around them rewinded. So, mm-hmm. like, I mean, just based on the cinematographical... Oh. Cinematographical. Cin- Cinematographic. Based on the way the movie did it. But they still got to avoid their previous selves, though. So if she was to go back in time to study more, she would have to pick a different spot so she didn't run it in place with her other self. <laughs> Someone's walking through the school and is like, Hermione, I feel like I've seen you studying everywhere. Like, you need to take a break. <laughs> library dormitory in like dining she's like hiding in the woods from herself to study i don't quite understand how that would work for hermione because like obviously with harry it's alarming to see your future self because you're unaware that you were gonna be there in the past but hermione's well aware that past her exists and future her will exist so can she see herself yeah i'd probably just throw myself the deuces and walk away (laughs) just like what up (laughs) right yeah. She would make herself a really good study partner. She could probably close <laughs> the curtain around her bed and just triplicate herself and do flashcards. Doing flashing flashcards with herself. She would, yeah. I hope that they made a lot of rules for her, actually, when they take her this time turner. <laughs> I'm just picturing, like, Rick and Morty, multiple Ricks, yeah. multiple Mortys, multiple, like, Hermione's just oh doing their thing. I'm the fun Hermione. I'm the study Hermione. Yeah, well, I'm the snacks Hermione. Do you want a muffin? Gotta keep your energy up. See, I knew that it was a good idea to cut this chapter in half because I knew we would want to get into the logistics of the time Uh, turner. It's too much. (laughs) It's too much. Um, Where do we even go? So, and then Hagrid comes into the Great Hall and is like, you guys are in my first ever lesson um, this afternoon. So that's like the second half of this chapter, the talents, part of the talents and tea leaves. So there's a little foreshadowing for next week's episode. Did anyone else look up what a polecat is? Oh, no. Because he comes in carrying a dead polecat, which Uh is kind of like a blend of a ferret and a red panda. Oh. And it's like, it's like cuter than you would want it to be for the fact that we're just feeding it to something. Oh, it looks like a ferret. I knew it was like some kind of, I mean, I definitely knew. Maybe that's why I didn't look it up is because I was like, this is for sure food. Yeah, is this the things he you see in the movies where he's just hanging from mm-hmm. his cottage? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The other thing is you have to look at a European polecat because a European polecat is yeah. different than an American polecat because Americans apparently in the South call, like, raccoons polecats, which I've never heard, and I've lived in the South <laughs> for my entire that. life. I've never heard that. Where have I heard that? I've heard other terms. It's a, nice. its closest relatives are the black-footed ferret and the European mink. It, they all look kind of the same. A little weaselly. Yeah, weaselly, but like cute as hell. Like I would have one as a pet. Noodle cats. 
Oh, noodle guy. I've always said cats are non-Newtonian fluids because when you touch them, they feel solid. But when you put them into a container, they fill the shape of the container. Like plasma. <laughs> it is worth noting that the Wikipedia did mention that despite them being called polecats, they are more closely related to dogs oh. from a biological perspective than they are cats. No, they're still noodle cat. <laughs> <laughs> noodle cat dog. Yeah. <laughs> it's a noodly animal. Cat dog does look a little bit like a, what is it, a rotini? No, what's the long... Bucatini? The long loopy. Like a pool noodle? Rigatoni. Is that, are you confident? Rigatoni is the big chunky boys. Yeah, rigatoni. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. I never buy that, so I don't know the name of the noodle because a smooth noodle just doesn't get any sauce in it. (laughs) I always go with farfalle or what's the one, the corkscrew one? Fusilli. Yeah, fusilli. Y'all talking noodles and I'm just calling macaronis. For what it's worth, if you want both a smooth pasta that holds sauce, bucatini is your answer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, wait, now I have to look at bucatini. It's like spaghetti with a hole punched in it. It's like intentionally made to suck up sauce on the inside, but otherwise be noodly. Bucatini. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. I studied abroad in Italy for a semester, so. <laughs> and all I got was this bucatini. <laughs> um, wait, this is really cool. It's like a straw. You like suck the sauce up into the straw. It is the exact structure of sour punch straws, basically. That is hilarious. Okay, well, I will be trying that. I'll report back. That'll be my plug next week. <laughs> Oh, where are we? Polecat. Okay. Um, the great hall starts to clear out. People are going to class, so we need to go to class. We need to go to Divination. It's in the North Tower. Let's go now because we don't know how to get there, and the North Tower is super far away. They are walking upstairs. They're getting lost. They're huffing and puffing. They're not quite sure. They're like, this way. Well, that's not North. Like, where's North? And Harry just, for some reason, like, makes eye contact with an empty painting. <laughs> It catches his eye. Well, they're climbing endless staircases as well. Yeah. Like, they're just like, up is staircases, staircases is up. I don't even take divination for the divination. I take it for the workout. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, working out inside Hogwarts would actually be like a a very easy, fun thing, I think. Maybe. I can see people making a lot of fun of you because there's nowhere to go. Like, the only athletics you're getting is broom flying, which, as we've mentioned before, is probably good for your core and legs. <laughs> but, like, I'm imagining you would catch a lot of shit for doing push-ups in the common room. Wait, the room of requirement. A little jam. <laughs> a little Hogwarts jam. <laughs> I want a room of requirements with just a bench press. I have at least, like, seven Harry Potter shirts that are exclusively for working out and sleeping in, so, like, I can already see the outfits happening. I wonder how many muggle-born children, um, like Hermione, has she ever thought, man, I wish they had an elevator in here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. Well, and also, like, what if someone breaks their leg? Because that's when people got to use the elevator in my high school, it's because they weren't able to walk. So, well, I think the answer is that in the wizarding world, people who fall behind get left behind. It's the pirate's code. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They learn Wingardium Leviosa immediately. It's like the first thing. And maybe it's to be able to levitate your friends upstairs (laughs) if they have a a serious accident. I think there's a different spell for that. I think it's um, the something locomotum. Oh, yeah. They they use it at the end of this book because Snape is unconscious. Growlithe. 
is it like Releve Releve or something? I want to say Releve because it's ballet in French and that sounds, that feels authentic to the way that spells are named in this universe. How I was picturing the tower, the staircases that they were going up reminded me of my camping trip a couple months ago where I had to hike up a mountain for two miles. And I was just picturing my 13-year-old self struggling to go up this tower. (laughs) (laughs) Need a walking stick just to get up every stair. Oh, yeah. Walking steps, uh, sticks, I don't know if it is, like, a psychosomatic thing, like, but, like, it's like, yeah, this is really helping me. Like, this stick is my life. So, it actually does help with hiking. So, the reason that animals go faster than humans do is because they have four points of contact with the ground. Oh, and that makes sense. It's good for balance, and it's also good for speed. Is that why we feel really fast when you run up the stairs with hands and feet when you're a kid? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> um, you said when we're a kid, but like I did have five minutes. I still to do get it too. Here. Yeah, I do it as an adult. But <laughs> human beings walking upright is like technically speaking a biological disadvantage. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, we got all these brains up here. We got to get them high off the ground, like for all our brain doing. <laughs> but like people use hiking poles all the time. So anyhow, I bought but- one immediately after camping. <laughs> it's just chilling in my car anytime I need it. <laughs> so the students of Hogwarts need standard issue hiking poles if they're going to take divination. Yeah. So Harry Potter has locked eyes with a painting of an empty field of grass. And <laughs> lucky for him, um, they it's Sir Cadigan's painting. Um, he doesn't tell us his name. It's a short squat knight in a suit of armor who like clanks onto the into the picture with his pony. And I can't not picture Samwise Gamgee in a suit of armor that doesn't fit him quite right with Bill Aww. the Pony. See, Aww. I actually, funny enough, I picture John Cleese, who I know plays Aww. nearly headless Nick, but he's just like. He would, he's exactly the voice I hear. He's just got that like perfect sort of elitist British accent where he would just be, yeah. oh, he'd kill a Sir Cadigan. I pictured him as Gilderoy Lockhart acting yeah. in a play about a knight. Mm-hmm. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Maybe just Kenneth Branagh acting as someone as a knight. <laughs> and relatedly, I envisioned him as Matthew Barry, who we said was a great al- alternate yeah, casting. Wait, his voice for sure would be Matthew right. Barry. Just like, never mind, on foot then, onward. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's so presentational. I just kept picturing something in Monty Python. That's just what was going in there. Yes, yeah. Nothing specific. I really wish he was in the movies. It is worth mentioning. I feel like it's our responsibility that it's worth mentioning that John Cleese is under a lot of fire for supporting J.K. Rowling's transphobic tweets Damn on Twitter, it. which why do people keep tweeting? They should just stop tweeting. Why? Uh, I got I a little know. nervous when I heard an interview with him and he was saying some progressive stuff. And then he um, said something about people are just too sensitive these days. And I was like, ooh, Oh, please don't. Please don't go down that road. Please don't do it. And he didn't. Elderly white men can only, like, give so much of a shit about other people. You know what I mean? I know. That's really disappointing. Does Sir Cadagan not know? You said Cadagan? That's how I've always... In the... I think it's the special features of the third film. Oh. He does exist. So he oh actually God. guides you through like a mini game on the DVD. Oh. And that's how they pronounced it. From what I can remember, okay. it was Cadagan. Well, um, 
check back in April or May when we cover the uh, the movie, and we'll <laughs> we'll follow up on that. That was that was my recollection of it because I I remember playing a mini game of following Sir Cadogan around the castle and Aww. you had to like find things in paintings. Um, but does he know he's in a painting? <laughs> Who knows? Not I. Like I can't tell. He's trying to like tilt at Harry, and yeah. Harry's a human. Are only some of them spatially aware? But then he like runs painting to painting. Yeah. Like, yeah does he I- know? I feel like he could know because that's like the only real important job that any of these characters in the paintings can do is sort of be the guards of things like the fat lady at the Gryffindor tower. I feel like that's all they can really do. And I feel like he'd be obsessed with being a knight Mm -hmm. in that situation. I don't know. But like, why try to fight Harry? Yeah, I don't know. Come at me, bro. He know well... (laughs) What are you going to do? I guess you could, like, set the portrait on fire. Yeah, he has, like, this character. He's just improving forever. <laughs> that, wait, that's hell. <laughs> Have y'all seen that South Park where they go to this, like, old-timey place? I haven't seen it in so long, so I'm going to get it wrong. But they go to some sort of, like, a Williamsburg situation for people mm. who are in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And, like, people are dressed up in old-timey stuff. Mm. And they, like, churn butter and all that stuff. And they never break character. And there's all these bad things that happen like i think people get murdered or something like that and they won't break character and they're trying to get them to give them a phone so they can call the cops or something and they won't they're they're acting like they really live in that time <laughs> and then it as soon as it hits 5 p.m they're like great day guys good job no one broke character great job i'll see you later at chili's for the happy hour <laughs> there's also an episode of gravity falls that does something similar so does okay did we does he know he's a painting we we think yes. He knows he's a painting. He's just a shit. Yeah. He's just really enthusiastic. Improv. I'm, that's what I'm. That's what I'm going off of. Just improv. <laughs> he lost a bet with another painting. Imagine getting painted into existence and you're lame. <laughs> or are they only aware if they were a real person? And if they were oh. not a real person, they are not aware because all the ones of like past headmasters and family paintings and homes, just like for photographs like harry's parents will wave to him or whatever at least in the movies visually you'll see they'll wave at you but like are they self-aware if they actually existed because are they in heaven or do they come and visit like what's the attachment to the real person because they have the same memories you can communicate with them definitely the headmaster portraits have some element of self-awareness because they take action it's the the one whose name i nigelis black or whatever the one who has a portrait in Grimald Place and in the headmaster's office. And then also eventually we see Dumbledore's portrait yeah. and it has some some inkling of his personality yeah. in it too. I think it might be, uh, I'm completely forgetting what I'm thinking of. Maybe a talisman, but like like a- A, a, a charm of some sort. Yeah, like I, I'm, what am I thinking of? It's like a, a, a magical thing that contains a portion of a person's essence. A horcrux. <laughs> not, not in a negative way. Yeah, some sort of essence of them. Yeah, like how in like Maori folklore, like you're the per- a person that gives you green stone, part of their essence is in the green stone, and that's what helps protect you when you wear it. Kind of. Oh, thing. an amulet. Yes, is that what you're thinking? Of? May- yes, quite possibly. An amulet. I googled good version of a Horcrux, and <laughs> a lot of weird things came up. 
I was just picturing, like, for some reason, because I was thinking of essence of a person, and I was like, well, we have DNA tests and we spit in a cup. Is that what they need? <laughs> <laughs> so Sir Cadigan does successfully lead them to the, the North Tower. So I think maybe that's how we know that it's not Gildray Lockhart playing a character, because he could never have done the thing that he claimed he could do. Yeah, he was True. not useful. Not True. a useful man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they get to the North Tower landing. Basically, they like run up a spiral staircase, and um, all the other their classmates are waiting there. And so Sir Cadigan is like, "If you ever need me, call just like call on Sir Cadigan or Cadogan or Toboggan." What did you say? <laughs> Toboggan. <laughs> Sir Kitty Cat. Sir <laughs> Meow. They are at division. Um, the staircase, like the, so it's like a, the classroom is through a trapdoor. So the trapdoor opens and like a staircase or like a ladder, no, a silvery ladder yeah. comes down and the class climbs into the divination tower. It looks, quote, like a cross between someone's attic and an old fashioned tea shop. So I envision it to look almost kind of exactly like Haley's apartment. Yes. I envisioned yeah. a caravan with just drapes or a Renaissance fair stuff. Like Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very bohemian. I've always thought this is a little bit like what the Ravenclaw common room looks like, if I had really? to guess. Yeah. Just kind of like lots of cozy places to tuck yourself away and read and like a good strong bracing cup of tea with a nice hint of caffeine that like lets you stay up to read more. Oh, mm. I like that. You know what I mean? I went to a weird place with it when it says everything was lit with a dim crimson light. The curtains, the windows were all closed and the many lamps were draped with dark red scarves. I immediately thought of the TLC song. No, is it TLC? Red light special? No, that's not TLC. Y'all don't know that song? Mm-mm. No, I don't actually. My husband knows it, so. <laughs> <laughs> so someone does. It is TLC. Yeah, so good. All right, y'all need to look it up on your own time. All right, well, we'll be playing a clip from that now. But in general, yeah, I get what you're saying. Very, like, red light district-y in, like, an unnerving kind of way. But maybe her power color is just red. It is a very power. And it is one of those colors that, as a light, like, whenever you see red in darkness, it's, like, obviously creepy, but... It might be a stimulation thing when it comes to Mm -hmm. divination because, in general, I'm going to speak from experience. When you are comfortable, it's easier to do a reading of any sort and you need to focus in... We're going to get to a point in, like, what you said, oh, does she not, like, come out or anything? It mentions that she doesn't really come out. But I think all the drapery is, like, a protective cover from weird energies for her, maybe. And mm-hmm. it might prevent interference with a reading. And then the color might be a stimulant as well. Or it could just be overthinking it. Like, when someone asks you, why'd you get a tattoo? It's because I liked it. It's not really a reason. I can see that. I do definitely get the sense that, like, she tries to create a very, like, gentle suit. Well, especially when they're talking about, like, the perfume that made Harry feel, quote, um, quote, wait, quote, wait, quote, wait, (laughs) wait, oh, a quote, sleepy and stupid. (laughs) There are, there is incense and oils that can put you into a trance state. 
Well, I think that for Professor Trelawney, it's probably helps her to be able to think more clearly and access her inner eye. Yeah. Whereas for the students who are just trying to understand this, it puts them to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's totally like a real like it a real thing. Um, I just picture this lady with like intense anxiety and it probably does yeah. a lot for her. Man, honestly, Ron and Harry are probably the worst people to be taking this class. They're just like, they're not very like... They're 13. (laughs) They're 13. They just like, they don't have a lot of patience. Well, here's my question. Because last book, when we were seeing them talk about like what classes they were going to take next year, they were talking about like career paths based Mm -hmm. on the classes that you're taking. What the fuck does divination feed into in the wizarding world? Because as we've mentioned, there's two jobs, government worker, entrepreneur. It's one of the arts. And just because it doesn't necessarily have a freelancer. Yeah. I think it's one of the arts. Me. (laughs) Yeah. My career as an artist. Well, and for someone who does truly have the site, they would be of great value to the government or whomever. Well, yeah, because um, we see later um, when we start getting into the prophecies, she's involved, right? Mm-hmm. And she doesn't even know it, and that's always really bothered me. Me too. Okay. I can see that being highly employable by Department of Mysteries and Prophecies, <laughs> then. I'm mysterious. In U.S. history, some presidents have actually been known to have divination readings and having psychics and the first ladies, so. Re- that was a big deal with Reagan, right? Mm-hmm. And I think one or two others. I can't remember off there the was, top of my he, head. He had his lady, I don't remember what her name was, but it, she's, she's, like, on record being, like, Air Force One doesn't take off without my consent. Wow. That's surprisingly witchy for such a yeah. like Christian backed. No, it was like president. a big deal. Well, it was really it was mostly Nancy. Oh. Oh my god, there's actually a really good episode of Behind the Bastards about this. We've talked about that podcast a lot on this show, so I'll mm. link that in the show notes because it's a very interesting story. Mm. Professor Trelawney makes her grand entrance. So she like comes out of the shadows and says how nice to see you in the physical world at last. Not <laughs> like she's been all. creeping on him. <laughs> and I love her description. This paragraph is so good. Harry's immediate impression was of a large glittering insect. Her eyes are bulging from behind her glasses. Mm-hmm. She's wearing all these fabrics on her. Le- they probably look like wings. I just mm-hmm. love that image of her. Well, it's not an HP description of a person unless we get a good read on the eyes. Yeah, what are the <laughs> eyes doing? I think that this character was really well cast in the movies. I think yes. I think Emma Thompson does it so well. She's like just spacey looking enough. You know, she really like gets in it. She really embodies that character. Yeah, she's just like wispy and floaty and yeah. bug eyed. Wayfish. Yeah. Wayfish. So she pretty much immediately mentions that she's a shut in. Like, she's Mm -hmm. basically agoraphobic. She says that you may not have seen me before. And then she kind of gives what I think is a bit of an excuse of, like, I find that descending too often into the hustle and bustle of the main school clouds my inner eye. I mean, it's a classic, like, you can't see what's right in front of you because you're looking, like, too far into the distance. She, like, doesn't even know anything about the place where she lives and works because she's too busy. She doesn't have good peripheral vision because her third eye vision is so strong. (laughs) (laughs) It makes sense, though, because a lot of, like, real meditation requires absolutely, like, the point of meditation is to let everything go, to literally think of nothing. But I would say that for most people, if you have 
the site if you have a connection to your inner eye i feel like it would be exhausting to be constantly tapped into that. it really is True. that is a big thing for people who do have the site and one thing that's always encouraged even people of my level of it who don't do it professionally ground center and shield yourselves like it, and i was thinking it's like this woman does not do anything to protect herself besides shut herself in the room she has so much cosmic energy around her it's literally frying her brain and we literally get that description yeah, I bet it. A lot of it is rooted in a sort of Gilderoy Lockhart esque. As far as I can tell, she doesn't. She doesn't know she's made any sort of real prophecies, other than little small things. So I think a lot of it she makes. She turns her world into something that a person with real sight would live in, mm-hmm. and she maybe overdoes it because she tries to overcompensate because she really doesn't have an easy kind of sight. Like an imposter syndrome? Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a second because I think we all know that Professor Trelawney is kind of, I mean, she generally kind of doesn't have the sight. She has two prophecies on record by the end of this book. And those are like her two blips of like real inner sight. Like big prophecies. Yeah. But throughout this chapter, she makes these like micro prophecies um, that that all come true. They do all come true. Mm -hmm. And I I get Hermione's like, oh, this is all a coincidence. But there's really specific things like Lavender Brown is like the thing you fear will happen on this date. And it's like her pet dies on that date. And that's really specific. And the thing with Neville and the teacup, like that's, she doesn't know that kid. Like she... It's very yeah. specific. She's not going to just be spitting out uh, prophecies like Nostradamus, like having books and books and books and books and books. Like that literally at anyone would be like way too overloading. But I guess my question is like, is she a fraud or can she see small stupid things that, you know what I mean? Like, can she look into her crystal ball and be like, oh, that Neville kid's probably going to break a fucking teeth. I think I she's legit. I think it's imposter syndrome. Or maybe things have changed because I don't know if in this universe, like, it's set in stone or if people can change what the results are going to be. Maybe she's run into those. And in this sort of thing, it's like either – it's like now you get bad reviews if something don't go exactly as you said. So maybe it's just the small things are easier to not change. But when it comes to, like, big decisions, people can always change their mind and then it can completely change. The prophecy that we know about what ends up being Harry could have very easily have been Neville. Yeah. So it could have gone either way, but he was still so deeply involved. And would Harry have been the Neville if Neville was the one, the boy who Voldemort went for? Yeah. I think about that all the time. Anytime Neville fucks up, I'm like, you could have been the chosen (laughs) one. This could have been you. He definitely had a glow up, though. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. That was magical. Catch my favorite picture of grown-up Matthew Lewis in the show notes. It definitely, um, back to the imposter syndrome... It definitely makes me feel for her like woman to woman because yeah. I, I feel like a lot of times she does obviously have a gift and she she knows what she's talking about to some level. She is an expert in this field on some level and yet she's she's nothing but made fun of by the rest of academia, which is also, I think, a conversation about academia and the arts. They're not taken seriously. Right. McGonagall says it's a very imprecise branch of magic. And and I feel like that's something that a woman sort of has to do. They have to be more aggressively proving themselves in bigger ways and more consistently. 
um, a lot of times than men do. You make one mistake and they mm-hmm. you get talked down to versus someone who seems to have more power if it's male or female. They're like, oh, it's no big deal. They made one thing. But when the wrong person makes a single mistake, it like can totally destroy their career. Mm-hmm. And going back to your point earlier, Mary Payton, you said that divination in this world is like an art class, like the arts, Mm -hmm. um, compared to like the core classes of like charms and potions and transfiguration. And I think that's also something that happens to people who are involved in the arts is that they're always constantly having to prove that their subject is valuable and that there's like a reason to do it. And a lot of this comes up a lot of times when it's around election season, but the, the skills and talents that are typically feminine mm-hmm. tend to be things that people think of as not. Um, I, I'm literally just thinking about the presidential election, honestly. Um, so maybe too pointedly. But, you know, the, the skills that men have typically had um, traditionally, especially in the U.S., have been things that we've seen as leadership. Like when men are aggressive, it's, it's seen as leadership. Mm-hmm. And in women, it's called something else, even if they do the exact same thing. I don't know. I'd, I'd be interested to learn more about whether women are more prone to the site than men are. I've definitely heard that, like, just in general reading fantasy, that's a, a trope that I have found as a reader is that women do tend to be more prone to the site. I've also read a lot of, like, ancient feminist fiction, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Where a, lo- a lot of that is sort of like, yeah, the mystical side of like, man, a lot of Alice Hoffman, my favorite author, sure, it's just like a shit ton of like ancient Jewish feminist shit. And Judaism in biblical era was pretty mystical, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As was, I guess, Christianity. These books don't, it's always, the Christians are always the bad guys. They're coming. (laughs) Where was I going? Now I'm just like, my brain is like in Masada in the desert. I'm like, what are we doing? (laughs) I think it's also maybe a thing where like more than imposter syndrome, she makes a a big prediction. She gets her job. Immediate imposter syndrome because she's like, I don't even know why the fuck I got hired for this because while I do feel like I have a tenuous link to this, I don't feel like it's actually my forte, right? Yeah. She then basically wraps herself in everything that is supposed to like up her power or increase her connection. Yeah. So she is also improving. Well, mm-hmm. I think she's just like marinated it in in it so long that she probably can make minor predictions, but also she's probably lost sight of the way that those like weave into the fabric of the actual future. Yeah, you know the what bigger I mean? picture. Like I think that she's kind of like basically like taken enough magical steroids that she like has brief glimpses at this point because she's been doing this for some time now and i don't know if she started off that way and that might also lead to why some of the the other professors at the school aren't that trusting of her abilities because i could see her showing up and being a lot less effective at making predictions Yeah, Mm. I definitely want to continue to monitor Trelawney's character throughout. And I think the last time we see her in this series in a meaningful way is in um, The Prisoner of uh, the, that's the book we're on now, The Order of the Phoenix, when um, Umbridge tries to throw her out. Mm -hmm. I want to continue to look at her through this sort of feminist lens that we, I personally didn't have when I was reading this as a kid. And as I've kind of mentioned before, 
a lot of my understanding of Harry Potter throughout the, my many readings of it in my life has been really limited by my original interpretation of it, which, as a reminder, was when I was like eight years old. So I I definitely look forward to like continuing to see how her story progresses and how other people talk to her, especially her peers. Mm-hmm. Hermione seems to backsass her, which is out of character. So does even Hermione not take this seriously as in disrespecting because it's in either an arts class or that Hermione knows that she might not be able to get this down because Trelawney obviously says it is a gift granted to few. So this is one thing Hermione can't weasel her way up studying. Yeah, for sure, Trelawney makes herself an enemy of Hermione right out the gate because she says, if you do not have the sight, there is very little I will be able to teach you. Books can take you only so far in this field. And to to Hermione, that is like blasphemy. Yeah. Yeah. To be fair, this is exactly how shitty high school drama teachers introduce themselves to their classes. <laughs> She's doing improv. For those of you that did not take high school theater, they come in wearing a shawl. Almost always don't know what it is with <laughs> drama teachers and shawls, but it's there. Um, they come in wearing a shawl. They immediately tell you that like, we're here to learn the art of theater. And my dears, if you do not have theater in your soul, there is very little I can do to implant it there. You will be relegated to shitty improv games. Yeah, because um, did anyone read this? Um, many uh, witches and wizards talented through they are in the area of loud bangs, smells, and sudden disappearings, and yet are unable to penetrate the veiled mysteries of the future. See, that's the other thing is Trelawney is not only like she's like, not only can you not learn this from books, but also I think that the magic you do is stupid. (laughs) I distinctly remember a theater teacher once telling me that she could teach anyone to perform theater, but you were only truly watchable on stage if you had the magic. Oh. And... I get a lot of that here. It, it was a it was an aggressive emotional flashback for me of of literally this teacher basically being like, "Hey, like I can teach you some basics, but this is a skill that you either have or you don't have." There was certainly a less shitty way to say this. Yeah, it's definitely kind of true. Agree. Yes, and I'm thinking of my high school drama class, and I'm thinking of my adulthood improv class I took a year ago, and it's like you can definitely practice. But like, yeah, so well, some people are good. It's even like sometimes Sean is like working on like a computer project and he feels compelled to like really explain it to me. And I'm like weeping, begging him not to. <laughs> and he just like really needs to for some reason. And I'm like, I don't get it. And he's like, well, let me explain it even deeper. And I'm like, no, no, it won't work. <laughs> you accidentally mention one thing that triggers them to like go into this deep, deep ball of who knows what. Sean's so quiet, so when I, like, say something that, like, hits a, hits a topic he's interested in, he's like, oh, I'm going to use all my words for the day right now. <laughs> it's like if you're in a foreign country and you say, like, hello in their language, and then they assume that you know the language, and they just start spouting you're it like, out. Oh, you're like, oh, no, 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 no. no. Yeah. Abort, I just abort. think your computer's cool. <laughs> yeah. See, the opposite happens to me, where I say hello and try to order food in their language, and they're, they immediately look at me and start speaking English. They're like, okay, that was cute. <laughs> <laughs> that was something that happened to me and Sean all across Europe. We would walk into a restaurant, not say a single word, and they would be like, English menu. Yep. And we'd be like, what? 
Europeans have the ability to clock Americans in a way that truly transcends the general limitations of the human brain. We look lost, but somehow still self-important, you know? Confidently yep. lost. Confidently yep. lost. Wow, that is going to be the name of my memoir someday. <laughs> God, that's perfect for you, girl. <laughs> <laughs> so... So Professor Chailani is, like, doing her intro. She's like, this is what divination is all about. And then, like, she keeps breaking off into a side. So she's like, she's like, maybe you'll be good at this. Maybe you won't. You, boy, to Neville, is your grandmother well? And he says, I think so, is how I imagine he says it. And then she's like, I wouldn't be so sure if I were you, dear. It's, like, so dramatic. Let's, for Haley, wizards are all about the drama. <laughs> and she is all about the drama teacher. She's a drama teacher. <laughs> she's Essentially. A drama teacher. She's um, like an introverted drama teacher, though. She's like, she's like, <laughs> I don't know. It's funny. She's fake introverted because she's putting on a show for the class. You're she right. she no, likes you're a captive right. audience. And like, we all know that. But person. she's in her zone. It's like someone yeah. won't be open and when they're out meeting new people. But when they're home, it's like a different space. Mm, mm-hmm. It, I think it's worth just noting that we've drawn several parallels between Trelawney and Lockhart in this. Um, just like they both really seem like imposters. Are they doing improv? Drama, drama, drama. And those actors were married IRL. What? So, yeah. Shut up. Huh. Oh my they had God. like a messy divorce though, They had didn't a they? very messy divorce. Or was it just for show? He was sleeping with Helena Bonham Carter. What? Yes. Was she? Oh is that God. why her and Tim Burton got divorced? Oh my God, guys! Movie that drama. Is juicy. Actors are all about the drama. That is so wow. juicy. I'm Actors gonna... either exist in a fuck puddle or they're divorcing each other. Those yeah. are the only two options. It's like all working in food service. Freaking Megan Mullally and Nick Offerman have that oh. podcast in bed with Nick and Meg, and I it's like them. they're in a fuck puddle. Yep, I love them. <laughs> they're like, we're not even getting out of bed. If you want to record a podcast with us, you have to come into our bed with us. So. Fauna, I wanted to get your um, opinion on this because she lists the different types of divination that they're going to be progressing through. Mm -hmm. And she seems to stack them in terms of like order of difficulty. And I wanted your opinion on how accurate that was. So she says, we're starting with tea leaves Mm -hmm. and then progressing to palmistry. And then after that, we're doing fire omens and then crystal ball. So I, and I think that's where we top out. Can I have a quick injection, like interjection question? Mm -hmm. Is fire, what was it? Fire... Omens. Fire omens. Um, it, is that what Melisandre does in Game of Thrones? Is that what that is? Like fire gazing? Fire gazing is a thing, but I don't know for sure if that's what that's referencing. Because fire gazing or smoke gazing or anything of the sort is kind of like, well, at least in my view, is the, like what you do in a crystal ball. You're looking into it and you're just focusing on it lightly to get either an image or a thought or something. Because some people are very visual and some people are more internal. For me, everything's internal. I don't hear things, but I think things. I get thoughts. I get feelings. I get words. Well, that's probably related to how some people think in pictures and some people think in words and some, some people, people think have in an internal monologue and some people don't. How do you not have an internal monologue? Well, it he- blows my mind. Wait, that here's the thing, guys. Wait, like seven. existential crisis. 24/7. Like, I'm just, I don't know if I have an internal monologue because I'm like, I'm like, is that, am I talking to myself or is it like, 
are those thoughts? Are they pictures? Like, you know what I mean? It's like, this is my brain. Like, I think what's that happening is what I picture internal monologue because, like, I have a voice in my head, but it's my voice. So, like, I talk to myself, like, when I'm processing things or when I'm reading, I hear my voice in my own head. But, like, when people say, yeah, I don't have an internal monologue, I'm like, is it just crickets in there? Like, when you watch TV, do not think about other huh. things. Do you not? And it's like, is it literally just, like, SpongeBob and it's just empty? <laughs> I think another part of my problem is that I work from home alone with my two cats. So for me, my internal monologue, like a lot of the time, just like comes out of my mouth. Hmm. So you just have fewer internal monologues and more external. I'm just always monologuing. My <laughs> yeah. I will say that like having lived in a van mostly alone for two years of my life, you can develop a stronger internal monologue if you spend enough time alone. Oh, yeah, I get that. Mm -hmm. I always say like brain brook doesn't care about reality. Like my my conscious doesn't care about reality, like what's possible, whereas like actual Brooke does. And so I, I find that my internal monologue is brought externally by me filtering what my conscious is thinking through the realm of possibility that my body is aware of. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so that makes me feel like when, like, I drink and the few times I actually drink, because I don't like drinking, like, there's my brain, and it's just like, don't say something stupid, don't say something stupid, and then you say the stupid thing. That's not drinking, that's anxiety. (laughs) That's the opposite of drinking. (laughs) Because I drink a lot, and my brain's just like, say whatever you want, bud, we trust you. I see my brain more as, like, a four-year-old. It, like, presents me with things, and then I get to decide how we process that. Oh, that's a filter. I've heard of those. Yes. Yeah, just filtering out. Because you still have to process your own things, your own thoughts, because if you don't, if you're making a decision, you're still presenting yourselves with options, and then you choose the best route. It's like a video game. Are you going to press A or are you going to press B? I will say, though, that I have been in a few life or death situations, like truly life or death situations, and I do not feel like Body Brook was present in those times. That, Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. they say that that happens. Yeah, that's a completely different response because that's a hormone change. But it's all like, it's all together. Like, it just like syncs up. Brains are crazy. Brains are crazy. I love brain stuff. Brains are wild. I talked to myself. It got a lot stronger when I was living alone in a van. This is probably how Hermione gets through three 9 a.m. classes with her time turner. Ooh, she does a lot of pep talks with herself in the mirror. If I may rewind us, I would really like an answer to my question about the methods of divination. (laughs) No, for sure. I was about to loop us back to that as well. Okay. So what you're asking about the different difficulties of some of them? Yeah. Do you feel, A, are are they all valid? Um, B, do they have different strengths? And C, do you feel that this is an appropriate difficulty progression? Kind of. I would say palmistry first because when you do palmistry, I don't like palmistry even though you guys might be able to see in the corner back there, I have a palmistry pillow. It's very set. Your palms don't change unless you burn your palms. So it's pretty set. So that I think would be consistent because that's more like what your life is going to be and it will not change. Like this isn't a change. But I don't do palmistry so I may be wrong. And then I would say tea reading because it's straight options. You just have to learn to decipher them and just learn the symbolism. And symbols mean different things to different people. So it's very individual versus if you had like tarot, which is set meanings to cards, you just have to apply them to your own life depending on your question and what uh, spread you're doing. I do agree with how 
the with the fire thing and the crystal ball scrying in general any sort of scrying if it's gazing into mirrors water like in lord of the rings anything like that is a form of scrying and that i feel like is more difficult because the visual aspect of literally you're going from nothing to something and then some people it's visual some people are audio and some people are like things just pop in their head and that's more me i would love to develop a skill and i'm actually reading a book that's to try to do that and i'll plug that in later but i do think the crystal and scrying in general would be a difficult progression but i would have switched palmistry with tea leaf reading and then i was kind of disappointed that there was no runes or tarot because that's more what i Tarot seems pretty, I mean, it's pretty common. And it's it's an set skill. Like, they don't change unless it's, like, an agreed-upon thing. And the same thing with runes. Runes have been used for over a thousand years in tarot within the last couple hundred, at least. Are a lot of these branches of divination, like, the the, what you described as scrawling, the crystal ball gazing and, like, the mirror gazing and the fire gazing or whatever, are those all basically just, like trying to get you to meditate it getting into a meditative meditative state is easier and harder for some people some people can just do it and it is i think because you have to focus and you're not like straining your eyes when you're staring into a ball it's more of having a relaxing moment to allow your conscious and your subconscious internal self because some people believe it's messages from above or from spirits and other people say it's messages from within your own conscious being projected like like a projector is being attached to you and you are lensing it into a bowl of water into a black mirror or into the crystal ball that's why some people can't see the same things you see because literally it's like you are becoming a school projector and projecting it into your own field of vision wow that's so cool I have not perfected scrying. It's very hard, but like I said, I am not a visual one. I am more, I get, except when it comes to dreams, and dream magic is its own complete thing. I've been writing down dreams and I'm interpreting dreams since I was 14. So I could say I've been doing it more, but I wasn't thinking it of witchcraft at the time, but witches do tend to do it. It's interpreting dreams itself is not magic because it's your own self. Anyone can do it. I have a really hard time meditating because it's, it's just, hard. Like I can't sit in silence. I, like I can't. I can't just like sit and do nothing. Like I've gotta be. Gotta be doing something. And that's why scrying would be hard for a lot of people because there are different types of meditation in for different cultures. There's active, which is kind of like you visualize something, you focus on it, and, but you focus on one thing, not an empty mind. I feel like the empty mind is more of an Eastern style and then an active, I'm not sure if it's Eastern or Western, but it's more of you're just focusing on a topic or if you're like going through like your day and just sitting and just processing and having you time, it's like you're, you're thinking of a thought and once you're done with that thought, you're like throw it out of your brain and then you focus on the next thing and then you throw it out. So you focus on just one thing at a time just to allow yourself not to be like discombobulated and like backed up. So if you were structuring this class, you would probably have scrying be a separate, more advanced level course and instead yes. replace the scrying with runes and tarot. Because uh, that's set things if i was teaching that class like an advanced level scrawling class i would want my classroom to look like 
Firenze's divination classroom that comes up in a later book. Do you remember when the centaur Firenze gets to yes. teach divination and um, so good? He has like his forest classroom. Mm, I need to read <sighs> back on that. And um, I think that would be like you could have a fire, you could like gaze at the stars, you could listen, you could not. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I think that is a place where a lot of people could get in touch with their like peaceful inner brain yeah but in general this i kind of do agree and don't agree with her um with scrying i feel like it's definitely a person-to-person thing because if you need to get into a meditative state and you can't but with runes and tarot or even just using a pendulum or any sort of real life divination bones or whatever things are very set and you just read cards it. it's are not interpretation set. it's not yeah you can interpret it interpretate the meanings to your personal life because there's oh, 78 cards in a tarot deck um and they have set things you can have websites and books where you go through it and then it's like oh this is what i feel like it'll apply to based on my question but scrying that's like literally where the hard part comes in because that is more like a skill that is very yeah. particular. You can learn and memorize the meaning of 24 runes in 78 cards, and then you could do it. It's not going to change. Mm-hmm. Some of this talk is reminding me, Mary Payton, of the Golden Compass oh. and about how it, like, you ask it a question in a way that, like, makes sense to you, and, like, it responds using certain sig- symbols, and you have mm-hmm. to, like, figure out what layer of meaning that symbol is supposed to indicate. Mm -hmm. And I love that, like, so many different cultures and religions and um, different magics Mm -hmm. use that sense um, or use that idea that you have to clear your mind. Like, in that book, Lyra or Lyra, she has to, she sort of just gets it. She's got the sight. Yeah, just knowing your intent because not a lot of people know what they want. So at least having a Mm. focused thought, even if it's not like fully clear, just knowing. But in doing magic in general, in real life, the big thing is knowing your goal, having intent. Because like if you say in Harry Potter, you mispronounce a spell, things are going to go haywire. So if you don't know what your focus is, you lose Mm -hmm. focus, you can blow off your eyebrows. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) This one's for you, Seamus. Yeah. (laughs) calling them out so where are we so she's like yeah we're gonna do like this in the first quarter and this in the second quarter like blah 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 this is what we're gonna do for school and then she's like by the way to Parvati Patil Professor Chelani says this she says by the way my dear beware a red haired man and Parvati is sitting right behind Ron and she like (laughs) like, looks at him and like scoots her chair away such a good moment I love it it's just like such a Ron moment. It's like his is, life is just like this. Is that the <laughs> twin who goes to the Yule Ball with him? No. Parvati goes with Harry and okay. Ron takes Padma. I was thinking of that. I was literally, yeah. I was like, do you mean beware? Because he's going to ruin the Yule Ball for you. And then he's, I was like, no, no, no. It's the other one. I rarely get as mad as I do at Harry and Ron until. That's really bad. Ugh, you anyways, just have to remind yourself to that Ron has a hard time processing his emotions, and he also was feeling heartbroken that night. Uh, yeah. Such a dude response, though. Ron was probably my least favorite because of just his emotional processing. Hmm. Even though Harry did dumb shit and Harry was oblivious for a lot of things as well. But the thing with Harry is that he's really listening to like listen and be like, I'm sorry, I yeah. hear you. But Ron is like not willing to do that. What is it that Hermione says? She says you got the the emotional range of a teaspoon. Is that what it is? That makes sense for his 
like their respective upbringings. Like Harry grew up in a house where he had to listen and intuit everything that was going on around him to avoid tripwires. He had no and Ron grew yeah. up in a house where if you are not the loudest bull in the daintiest <laughs> china shop, then you are not getting heard. Oh, Ron. And where he probably did a lot of muttering because no one could hear him. So he talked sarcastically sort of to himself. I forgot to mention that with um, Sir Cadigan, where he says, yeah, we'll call you, muttered Ron, as the night disappeared, if we ever need someone mental. Like that's such a, that line could just be repeated over and over again for Ron throughout the books. That's a youngest <laughs> of six brothers line. Yeah, yeah. yeah for sure. Uh. So, and then Professor Trelawney goes on to predict that classes will be disrupted in February by a nasty bout of flu. COVID. <laughs> February. Oh my oh, god. Oh my god. <laughs> oh no. For what it's worth, COVID probably entered the US in like November. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah but it, it really became a thing in February. Yeah, lockdown True. started in February, March. Trelawney asks Lavender Brown to pass her the largest silver teapot. Lavender's relieved that sh- nothing was predict nothing terrible was predicted about her. And- but then Trelawney's like, wait, but by the way, the thing you're dreading, that's going to happen on Friday the 16th of October. And, well, all spoilers all the time, her dang pet bunny dies that day. So Trelawney splits the class into pairs. Well, she instructs them to split into pairs to read each other's tea leaves. She predicts Neville's going to break the cup, which he does immediately. Um, also, she's like... After you break a pink one, can you take a blue one? Because I like the pink ones. But, like, why doesn't she just say, hey, like, don't grab a pink one ever because I don't want you to break the first one? I think that he's, like, reaching for it and he just, like, knocks it off a shelf. Like, I I don't even think he gets, like, all the way. I think he's just, like, reaching for a pink cup and she's like, can you take a blue one after you break that one? He's like, huh? Oh, And it just, like, knocks it. Ooh, like in um, The Matrix. When she's oh. like, don't worry about the vase. And he's yeah. like, what vase? And then he asks it and she's like, this one's really going to get you later. Would you have even knocked it over if I did said anything? I love right. it. I love I, I'm really down in general for like slightly sleepy tea drinking class. I'm decidedly less <laughs> down for being told the date that I'll die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, way to start. <laughs> way to start with that. Um, also, do we even know if Hermione gets a partner? Does she pair off with anyone? I always assume she's either being nice and pairing off with Neville or one of the girls. that Because we only learn about three of the five Gryffindor girls. And so like, there must be two other girls. We have some understanding that Hermione does have like a well-developed group of female friends. Like yes. She does speak to the other girls. She definitely does. We don't see it nearly as much as it actually happens. Hmm. Well, and I love when she like starts whipping it out at the in like later books when she's like, oh, haven't you heard this person has a crush on this other person? And it's like, I learned this from my girl gang. She's getting into her girl power. Yeah, I love it. She's like, I have more than just two male friends. But that's the thing, like for her two young teenage male friends, that is the coolest thing to have. Because Harry and Ron only have each other. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, but it's also a thing where they're like, we have like a window into the souls of the women. (laughs) Yeah. They they don't use it to full effect, but like most teen boys would die for the chance to know exactly what the girls around them are thinking at all times. Yeah. And if Harry and if Ron and Hermione hadn't been kind of fighting about the Yule Ball, I'm sure they would have been like, oh, my God, Hermione, please tell us who we should take to this Yule Ball because mm-hmm. I've been told I need a date and this is a nightmare. <laughs> I I don't know. They should have just gotten together. That's a power move I would make is like, I don't have anyone. I'm 
bringing my friend, my gal friend. Mm, are we going to make out? Maybe. <laughs> um. Anyway, so Ron and Harry, worst people to be in a divination class. They drink some tea. They swap teacups. They start looking through their book for symbols that might be represented in the tea leaves at mm-hmm. the bottom. Why did Harry and Ron sign up for this class? This was fully optional. They probably thought it was an easy class. Easy, it's an art. Most people are like, oh, the arts are easy. And then they find out it's not, and then you get a D on all your art projects. Oh, yeah. actually, that's very relatable. Yeah. So I'm Slytherin, but I'm also like Ravenclaw cusp. And the classes where I found it the easiest, um, not that art was easy, but like the art classes that were easy, Yeah. I did the worst in because I just didn't care enough. I didn't understand it and process it right. And... I would end up not doing the work because I was like, I don't know. There's these other classes. I'll just focus on that. I mean, honestly, like it's it just like a direct reference to like every jock that took theater because they thought that it would be easier than learning to sing or play an instrument or dance. The classes that are subjective are almost harder because it's opinion based and it's very personal. You have to put more thought into it, honestly. Yeah, art teachers and drama teachers, and I'm going to assume divination teachers, are going to be brutal <laughs> and harsh, and they're going to tell you when something's shit, it looks like shit. You could follow all the instructions. They're like, no, you fucked up. You fucked up. And now I have Uncle Roger in my head because like, fu- <laughs> fucked up. Well, even like English, I would have to explain this to my friends where they would be like, well, English is an easy major. And I was like, hey, dude, when you show up to a test, you have an answer that you can find. It's up to you whether or not you've learned enough to find that answer. But when when I go into writing a paper, I'm having to create an answer. And defend yourself. That could still be say, no, you're wrong. Right. I majored in English and psychology, um, which sound like very different things. Show off. They're very similar. They, they both end up just being a lot of papers, like yeah. so many papers. And so whenever I actually loved it when I was required for whatever reason in college to take uh, like some sort of science or math class, like statistics. God, I love statistics. I took it like 20 times because Ooh. I just loved Ooh. it because it's oh. just it's all it is is formulas. It's just plug it in. You, you either know the formula or you don't. Um, a lot of times they provide you the formula because that's not yeah. the point. You just have to know how to use it. So Harry's looking at Ron's teacup and Ron's like, what do you see, boy? And Harry's like, it's a load of soggy brown stuff because the perfume is making him sleepy and feel sleepy and stupid, which is relatable. They're basically just kind of like making shit up to each other. They're like, I don't know. This looks like a cross or like this looks like a dog, like whatever it looks like. Um, and they're like laughing kind of at how stupid it is and like how bad they are at it. Which is an important friendship bonding thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking sure. of important friendship bonding, we get the first joke where Ron acknowledges the deep wealth disparity between him oh, and yeah. Harry. <laughs> Which, like, he's, like, joking about, he's joking that he's read that uh, Harry's going to have an unexpected windfall of gold. And uh, he's like, you know, like, maybe you can lend me some. <laughs> and I'm like, literally, that would be the only equitable thing for Harry to do at this point. He let you suffer through an entire semester with a broken wand when he yeah. has the ability at any point to walk into Gringotts, scoop up a handful of gold and stroll out. Yeah. <laughs> Was anyone else bothered by that? I like that just got me. 
Yeah. I feel like Harry at this point is still kind of like, this isn't really my money. And when that changes is at the beginning of Prisoner of Azkaban when he's stuck in the Diagon Alley for like three weeks and he's like, this is my money now, bitches. I'm gonna get ice cream every day. (laughs) That's the problem. He spends it like a 13 year old. (laughs) And the Weasleys definitely strike me as a family that is very proud and not in the bad way, but in the way that they don't, they never ask ask anyone for anything. Yeah. Yeah. They're very self-sufficient. Totally. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that they managed to get along a lot with, like, magic, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, with their, like, little magical garden and their little Mm -hmm. magical house. So, because the boys are laughing, Trelawney comes over to, like, see for herself. Like, what are you laughing at? And so she starts reading Harry's teacup, which he'll learn quickly to not permit that anymore. Um, She's like, oh, the falcon, you have a deadly enemy, my dear. And Hermione's like, well, everyone fucking knows that. Are you joking me? (laughs) (laughs) Basically. And yeah, Ron and Harry are like, wow, Hermione. But Trelawney soldiers on. She predicts an attack. She predicts danger. And then she turns the cup, gasps, and screams because you, my dear, have the grim. (laughs) And Neville breaks another cup in fear and shock. Are those real symbols? Yeah, the Grim is a real thing. Oh, no, I'm aware of the Grim. I mean, like, does, like, the Falcon actually pretend an enemy kind of deal? What is it? What an enemy? She she says it's a Falcon, which is a deadly enemy. She sees a club, which is an attack, which makes enough sense. Um, A skull, danger in your path, and then the Grim. Well, falcons are like hunter birds, so maybe it's like the hunting aspect of a falcon. They're not necessarily like a parakeet. True. Um, And then the club. And things can change meanings if they are next to something or where they're located next to something. Um, Because something can be seen as not dangerous, but when it's next to like a club or a skull or this, it's kind of the interpretation. It's like, okay, how does this connect to this, connect to this, connect to this? And that's how tarot works. Ah, okay. Because they can change meanings based on how they're with each other. Yeah, that makes sense. I love this part, too, because it's not just, we're not just introduced to the Grimm as a symbol in a teacup. We've seen it already with Harry a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we're already kind of worried about it. Foreshadow. We almost, you know, like, school is, it takes so much of your attention, um, especially a magical school when we're in this story that you've forgotten about those things that happened before school starts. And then you remember, and it all links up in this moment. And you're like, there's no way this is coincidence. Magic. Yeah. So Harry's like, oh, I've seen a grim before, like in his head. He doesn't say it out loud. Yeah. And Hermione's like, that doesn't even look like a grim. And Trelawney's like, shut the fuck up, Hermione. (laughs) Yeah. I perceive very little aura around you. Very little receptivity to the resources of the future. I really like that Harry continues his like run on not being afraid of death here where she's like the grim blah 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 it's like this horrible vision of the future and he's like oh that does make sense <laughs> logical he's just like oh yeah oh that actually ties a few things together for me appreciate yeah. it like still yeah. no fear really he starts to get more angry about it than anything or, or anxious not not even really anxious I feel like it's an anger but uh, he says, oh, when you've all finished deciding whether I'm going to die or not, said yeah. Harry. Because Seamus was, like, spinning around. He's like, oh, it kind of does look like a grim if you hold it this way. Kind of thing. Like, <laughs> get out of here, dude. Like, shut up. You're not making it better. Harry's very sick of people just, like, fussing over him. He's like, general. why am I the boy that lived? Like, I'm I'm just Harry. It's like, just Harry. 
This makes me think, too, that he is more afraid and more bothered by the serious thing than he lets on, even to us as readers. Yeah. Because he obviously is bothered enough, and it says that he even took himself by surprise. So I think he doesn't realize really how much that bothers him that now he's seen another Grimm. He's getting yeah. older. He's facing more fear because of his first year. It was he just learned about his history, his past. So it's as he's learning about more things, the understanding of the severity is different. Because when you're a kid, you don't pay attention to the dangers of the world. When you're young, you know there's bad people out there, but you don't experience. You don't see it. But as you experience things, your perception of the world also changes. And then once you get the middle in high school, you're like, oh shit! Like this is a lot more serious than I took it as a child. Well, and he's also just, you know, functionally learning more about magic and seeing the possibilities of magic. I would say in day-to-day life, a lot of people are dismissive of magic in general. And I could see someone coming from a fully muggle background being, if not dismissive of the magic that is at Hogwarts, at least trying to cautiously ascertain where the boundaries are. Because he's still not totally aware of that. But as he sees more possibilities, I think he also lends himself to greater belief in those possibilities. Yeah. I feel like, too, for him specifically, but also for the wizarding world in general, Voldemort at this time and fear itself is a more general term. It's more like a ghost. And over the books, it gets more real intense it's more day-to-day and Sirius is a really good example of like a real life person now that wants to kill him um yeah so he thinks you know people have this general fear of ghosts and things like that but when you get older I feel you get more afraid of the real life stuff yeah it's becoming more and more real yeah Yeah, you don't go from being afraid of the boogeyman grabbing your feet when you're asleep versus being afraid of actual people Mm-hmm. Yeah, And so, I mean, the scariest part for Harry is that he, yeah, has already been worrying about this, like, dog situation. <laughs> He's seen the dog twice before when he ran away from the Dursleys on Magnolia Crescent. He saw it in real life. And then he also saw it on a divination book at Flourish and Blots. Yeah, her- Trelawney's like, I'm spent. And his, like, class is over. Um, so everyone leaves divination class. And then I guess, even though it's an elective... The whole class took it because they all go directly to Transfiguration afterwards, Mm. which is a required class. I think it might just be like uh, intelligent scheduling where they're just like, it's easier for these students to move as a group so we know where they are. And there's some peer-to-peer accountability that they (laughs) arrive at point B from point A. I guess what I'm saying is everyone that we would expect to see in any class was in Divination, which is an elective class. It's worth noting in the UK that you sort into either basically trade school or university track pretty early on, right? Yeah, it's very different than the United States. Like late middle school, you basically take a bunch of aptitude tests and then they decide like who's going to college and then who is going to go to trade school, basically. they And that happens in a lot of Europe, but they branch the kids based on whether you're taking more academic pursuits or more practical pursuits. That doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be necessarily the case here. It seems like right. they let the kids decide. Yeah, which is not, I mean, not always great. <laughs> but the concept of being like, hey, like you've arrived at the choose your own adventure part of your education. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Harry and Ron are not clearly not up to the responsibility of choosing their own adventure. To yet. be fair, why is there not a class counselor at Hogwarts? Like, who... Yeah. Who is throwing these, like, books of possible classes at children and just being like, hey, these impact what jobs you're eligible for? Good luck. 
Well, later yeah. they do have um, career counseling with McGonagall, but it's yeah. like one single 15-minute meeting. Like, y- you would think, because they do talk about that. They're like, well, this will, you know, if you want to be like an R, you're going to want to take these classes and stuff. So you'd think that they would maybe guide them a bit. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think they do a little bit more when they take their what OWLs or owl yes. exams or something. Yeah, McGonagall gives them guidance at that time. I couldn't trust a 13-year-old to make the decision. At least 15 is like college age or you can yeah. at least legally have a job and get paid for it in real life. Speaking of McGonagall, they're at Transfiguration class. And McGonagall is lecturing. Everyone is having a hard time listening to her lecture on anime guy, animagi, animaguses, animagus is how you say that. I don't know mm-hmm. how to say the plural. So, like, he's not listening to her describing the resolution of this novel. He just got told <laughs> he was going to die again for the millionth time in three years. She is, like, distinctly hurt that these 13-year-olds are not impressed with her cat trick. It's yeah. so funny. She says, quote, not that it matters. Yeah. It usually gets a, a, a round of applause. <laughs> she gets a little giggle out of it. It's, like, her satisfaction to watch the kids giggle. Well, and honestly, that's ruined by the films because the very first class going to class bit in Sorcerer's Stone is her, like, pulling that on them. Yeah. When yeah. they're like, oh, thank goodness McGonagall is in here. And she's like, bitch, I'm a cat. Like, boom, bitches, I'm right here. So finally McGonagall's like, wow, you didn't even applaud me in my performance. What's going on? Hermione's like, we just got out of divination class. McGonagall's like, oh, I, f- I fucking know what this is about. Who's dying this year? Hmm. I love McGonagall and Trelawney's contentious relationship. Yes. And I love that uh, McGonagall comes to Trelawney's aid also yes. when it really matters. Because family's family. Yeah. Yeah. Um, McGonagall explains that Professor Trelawney seeing death omens is her favorite way of greeting a new class. Divination is one of the most imprecise branches of magic. You're you're not going to die, probably. To be fair, that would be my favorite way to introduce myself to a class as well, <laughs> no matter what I taught. I'd be like, I can just, I can feel that I can one of you is not going to make it through the full year. I'm just imagining... McGonagall going up to Trelawney's like tower and like broom knocking on the roof to be like you ruined my cat trick (laughs) (laughs) yeah Sybil we talked about this I was kind of reading as well it's just like true seers are very rare in Professor Trelawney and she like trails off yeah she's about to be like that bitch is a fake and then she's like well I guess I'm a professional so why do they say does does Dumbledore explain why no one else knows about the fact that she can't actually? Dumbledore like, hired Gilderoy Lockhart for a whole last year. He does not explain his decisions to anybody. He makes very questionable decisions, and he always has a reason for it, but we don't know even if we don't agree. Like, what was the point of Gilderoy in general? That was probably the most useless hire he's ever had except to annoy the children. Yeah, yeah he hired Gilderoy Lockhart to keep an eye on him. But that's the thing, like, if he's willing to do that, do you think any of the professors really question why he hired someone for divination that they feel is, like, not quite up to the task? He also hired someone who truly wasn't who they were, and they were drinking polyjuice potion over the years. And he hired a half-Voldemort hybrid, and he's given (laughs) Hagrid free reign of the forest. He was not doing any background checks whatsoever. Not at all. Honestly, the more fucked up the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, the better for normal. Let's hire a werewolf. Even though 
That was the best choice he's ever, best hiring choice ever. Yeah, that's true. Dumbledore hires on like a coin flip and like a good feeling. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's no better way to learn defense against dark arts than from a dark art teacher. (laughs) Tist, a dark artist. Right. The darker the people, the better the kids learn from experience, real life experience. Ugh, Dumbledore. The, the last thing that happens in Transfiguration is, well, okay, the, the way that that conversation ends is Professor McGonagall says, you look in excellent health to me, Potter, so you will excuse me if I don't let you off homework today. I assure you that if you die, you need not hand it in. <laughs> that I love when she's got jokes. Here's the craziest thing, though, is like, Harry has been primed for this year by everyone being like, hey, you're not allowed out at night because someone is actively trying to murder you. And I feel like because Harry has been so nonchalant about it, that might be a moment for her to like pull him aside and be like, hey, so like, don't want to freak you out. But remember, there's a chance that you're dying. (laughs) Remember. Hmm. Like, remember how there's a murder after you? Yeah, I'm not saying this is, like, for sure a real prediction. I'm just saying that your choices might affect whether this is a real prediction. (sighs) Yeah. So they go to the Great Hall for lunch after Transfiguration, and Ron asks if Harry has seen a big black dog anywhere. So Harry tells him about his sighting on Magnolia Crescent, and Ron is really superstitious. He's not okay with this information. Meanwhile, Hermione is not impressed. She's not buying the bullshit. Probably a stray. Yeah, Harry's literally just like, he's like, have you seen a black dog? And Harry's like, um, yeah, it's actually been enough of a thing that I've been thinking about it a lot. So this is a weird coincidence. Yes, yes, (laughs) yes. Just deeply unperturbed. Hermione, Ron says, like, you should be more afraid. Uh, Like, Hermione, Grimm's scare the living daylights out of wizards. And Hermione is like, well, they see a Grimm and then they have a heart attack from fear. Like, you are being traumatic. So do you think that Hermione's opinion of divination may be colored by the fact that divination is a thing in the muggle world that a lot of people dismiss? Yes. Like, she can see things happening. Her muggle perspective. I think the book's comment didn't help at all. But, you know, she can, like, she can see when she does magic. Like, you can see if you levitate something, she can see a lot of the effects of magic. Some people have to see to believe. Yes, she seems like muggle levels of dismissive of divination. And I think it might be because she's been exposed to non-magical fake divination. Right. In terms of kind of some of the like... Roadside palm readers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to to the muggle way of measuring intelligence, which is completely based on metrics. So like how well you do on this test, what percent you get right. And for things like divination and again, the arts... I think mm-hmm. I think if this were an art class where she couldn't just study theory and do it well, I think if she weren't doing it well, she would react the exact same way. Yeah, yeah. it's so built on seeing results and results are telling into her dad's a dentist. If he was like if he fucked up, he'd know straight away if he fucked up as a dentist. So wow, it's just so like true. levels of <laughs> So Hermione knows don't fuck up. Yeah. Ron and Hermione's argument is kind of escalating while Harry's kind of like shell shocked. And Ron says that Hermione just doesn't like being rubbish at something for a change, which oh, obviously true. makes Hermione mad. She says her arithmancy class was much better than divination class, and she stomps away. And this part, the first half of this chapter ends with the boys being like, what the fuck? She hasn't been to arithmancy yet because she was with us in divination and transfiguration. I have a quick question for you. Does your book say 
you just don't like being rubbish at something for a change? Yeah, I have the British version. So it's funny to me because our book translates that, the uh, American version translates it to you just don't like being bad at something for a change. Um, But then immediately afterwards, it says that lesson was absolute rubbish compared with my arithmancy class. So they do use it in context like two sentences later. Yeah, it has rubbish in both of these. It's just weird to me that they're like, this rubbish is incomprehensible, but this rubbish is fine. What is arithmancy? I think it's like the math of magic somehow. Yeah, Yeah, gross for sure. Gross. In modern numerology terminology, arithmancy is a form of divination (gasps) based on assigning numeral value to the word or phrase. Oh, it's numerology. Oh. Okay, I know exactly what that is. Yeah, so I don't see why Hermione likes that better. And honestly, I would have probably expected her to be like, in terms of divination, arithmancy is a lot more reliable. You know what I mean? Like, I would almost expect like a more detailed argument there. Hmm. Is there any basis for that claim? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think. Um, I don't see arithmancy or what numerology would be as a form of divination because it's kind of set. But then there are other forms that are kind of set. Arithmancy or numerology isn't really predicting. It's just more like astrology. It's just there. It's not like you change. Like if you want to find your numerology and your number, you would take all the numbers from your birth date, like zero, this number, this, this, this. You add the numbers together and you keep adding them together until you get between like zero and nine. And then there's different meanings for different numbers and what it means if you're a leader or if you're a follower or if you're an artist or this or that. They're a little more set or like how numbers attach to words and how those words based on what the number of each letter because a letter is attached to a number and it's just I don't know I don't think that would be divination so maybe she likes it because she can tangibly see something and understand because math is math that's probably also her muggle side coming in because you can add two plus two and it has an answer that might be particularly appealing to her because she, unlike most wizarding children, has had a background in public school math. Like, she's mm-hmm. taken basic yeah. algebra. Yeah. Yeah, so she can get to the answer. There is an answer, She can get yeah. to the answer, mm-hmm. yeah. Good for her. Well, that's the end of this section. I... I'm so glad I split this into two sections because we managed to talk for two hours about just the first half. Tea leaves! Oops. <laughs> Honestly, I think there's a huge point in the middle, though, of me talking about my subconscious that you could probably easily cut. (laughs) (laughs) I'm already not offended that that's going. (laughs) Let's move on to some plugs. Mary Payton, will you please go first? I'm ready with one, and it's a game. Um, Oh, so my name is Mary Payton. You can follow (laughs) me on Instagram at Richmond Reads. So we have two kids, a 12 and almost 14-year-old. And so we've gotten a lot of games this Christmas. And one of them is Harry Potter Death Eaters Rising. I don't know a lot about board games. It says the fate of the wizarding world is in your hands. But essentially it takes place during the fifth book, Order of the Phoenix, when everything's real dark and scary and Death Eaters are definitely on the rise. And you've got these different locations around the the wizarding world and... Sorry, my, my husband's taking out all the pieces for me. <laughs> <laughs> we need to have a game night and play that. Yes, game night for sure. But yeah, it's really fun. You know, you're creating your wizard army and trying to have enough power to defeat any Death Eaters in any particular area. We've played twice. One time we won 
And one time we lost really badly to the Death Eaters. So is it like playing with cards and you go based on that? Or is it like a D&D where you have to like make these choices and it could change at any time? <sighs> it's kind of, it's nice to play with the kids because we have not played a lot of complicated games. Um, so it's kind of like a, I would say it's like kind of a beginner game into that okay. realm of more complicated because, um, you know, certain certain cards have different abilities and you can heal wizards and you can damage death eaters but it's not it's not that complex to be honest we tried to play this other game that we have that was really complex so we stopped like halfway through because we were like uh um so this one this one you can do in a couple hours it's not too bad but it's just it was really fun hell yeah brooke how about you you can follow me on instagram at passion for parks you can follow me on twitter at grumpy brooke This week, I'd like to plug a book I just finished called The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. It is by Suzanne Collins. It is a prequel to the Hunger Games franchise. Um, The Hunger Games are better than you remember them being. I'm just going to say that. The books are incredible. If you haven't read them in a while and your reference has been wiped clean by the movies, the movies are not nearly as good. Suzanne Collins excels at two things, character development and brutality. And The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is a prequel to the Hunger Games series, and it is following President Snow and his adolescence and the beginning of the Hunger Games as a concept, and it is fascinating and brutal and a beautiful psychological dive into privilege and social class and the way that a society recovers from war. Wow. Probably some important context for us all to have these days. Mm-hmm. That was some nice back cover copy right there. <laughs> yeah. I really, really enjoyed it more than I thought I would because it didn't get well reviewed online necessarily, but it's it's definitely worth reading and it's making me reread The Hunger Games, which I don't reread books, so. Yeah. Yeah. Fauna, what do you have to plug? Okay, I'm going to plug myself. Yes. Um, for those <laughs> oh. who are interested in real witchcraft um i host a witchcraft podcast called cats teen witchcraft um there's about 20 episodes currently um the next two weeks we should have the 19th and 20th episode if you want to follow me on social media for the podcast my name is uh spelled f-a-w on f-a-w-n-a um like fawn like a baby deer in a so fawn a and the podcast um, Instagram is Cats Tea and Witchcraft. On Twitter, it's Cats Tea and Witch. And if you are interested in like sending me actual messages off of it to like I can send you more sources, you can email me at Cats Tea and Witchcraft Podcast at gmail.com. And some books that I'm currently reading are witchcraft books if you are interested in like psychic stuff and things like that i'm actively reading it is like one of the top witch books of the year it's called psychic witch um it's by a matt aaron or aaron and it's like flying off the shelves and it's a really good book if you're trying to develop different psychic skills in case of divination you don't need to be psychic to do divination But if you want to strengthen your divination, working on your psychic skills can only help you. And the other book I'm reading is just another good, maybe more intermediate beginner book, just because I haven't read it in full. Usually sometimes you skip chapters based on what I'm focusing on. And it's by Christopher Penzak, and it's um, The uh, Inner Temple of Witchcraft. I think it's the first of the series, and that's a pretty good one if you want to get a little deeper beyond the surface level of topics, which a lot of witchcraft beginner books do. 
Excellent. Thank you so much for those book recommendations. Hermione would be very grateful. <laughs> I've been your host, Christina. You can follow me on Instagram at your girl of the world. You can follow me on Twitter at Christina Khan. And this week I'm going to plug, I know everyone knows already, but if you somehow haven't watched the Queen's Gambit miniseries on Netflix, you simply must. It is just a really beautiful tale. Other people have plugged it on this podcast before me, but it's the only new thing I've been watching, reading lately. So I want to make sure that everyone has every opportunity to hear that it's good. Okay? It's good. It's not even really about chess. I think chess is super boring. It's not about that. It's about addiction and trauma and loss. And it's beautiful. Okay. Well, that's the end of our show, gang. Fauna, thank you so much for coming on and talking about talons and tea leaves. Well, really no just problem. tea leaves. Yeah. <laughs> it was a pleasure having you. Uh, it's always good to have like a real witch's perspective when we're talking about the world of Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yep. It's always fun because usually that's one of the things that people dive into when they're younger and it kind of leads into it. A lot of them have other feelings maybe like when they're younger, but having Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings just emphasizes they're like, there is something more. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Books and fantasy in particular help to sort of open other worlds to young Mm -hmm. growing Mm -hmm. minds. Mm -hmm. And if somehow you're a crazy Christian mom and you've made it through this podcast, that's a lie. Let your kids read things. Yes. Can you imagine if someone was like hate listening to this podcast? You can't fly. You can't explodey things with a stick. That's just not real. (laughs) I'll say that. It's not the same thing. Explodey things with a stick is like one of those like bad book descriptions, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Some 13-year-old explodes things with a stick. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's all for today. Um, Until next time, get out of my classroom. Class is over. Bye. The Restricted Section was created by me, Christina Kahn based on the book series by J.K. Rowling. Theme music by Ryan Kahn. Logo by Michael Hardison. Be sure to like our Facebook page, The Restricted Section Podcast. Join our Facebook group, The Restricted Section Detention Crew. Follow us on Instagram at Restricted Section Pod and on Twitter at Restricted Pod. If you want to join our Discord server, shoot a message to one of our socials and I'll get you connected. You can also email us at restrictedsectionpod at gmail.com with thoughts, feelings, complaints, or even lavish praise. Until next time, potheads. I can't even handle sriracha.